This Dharma Talk was presented at the Austin Zen Center in Austin, Texas. For more information, visit austinzencenter.org. Good morning. Good morning. Welcome back for those of you who are returning. And welcome in general to those of you who are coming here for the first time. Um, We were closed for a retreat last weekend. The first time we've been closed for a retreat in a long time. Normally we try to keep a public program going so that the public is invited to come in for a Dharma talk. But last weekend, due to the nature of the retreat, it was a very short retreat, less than 24 hours of retreating. (laughs) And uh, the topic of the retreat last week, we, we got to hold the retreat in commemoration of the Buddha's final days and passing, which is why, if you look on the altar, we have a little little statue of the Buddha in the lion's pose, lying on his right side, which is how he uh, entered nirvana. And um, in Soto Zen, the official date that we celebrate and commemorate the Buddha's entering into Parinirvana is uh, Valentine's Day, the 14th and 15th, which this year we got to actually do our ceremony on those days, which was very nice. Um, and I, I wanted to keep the Buddha on the, on the altar for a little bit longer for that reason. Um, other Buddhist traditions tend to celebrate the Buddha's birth Enlightenment and passing all on the same day, which is called Vesak, which is, I think, celebrated on April 8th. And April 8th is when we, in the Soto school, celebrate the Buddha's birthday. And, of course, we celebrate enlightenment uh, on the 8th of December, ideally, if, you know, if our calendars, if it's convenient. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I wanted to say a little bit... um, because we didn't have a public talk last week, and I wanted to share some of the um, some of what came out of that retreat that we had on Buddhist Parinirvana. Um, in particular, I wanted to talk about the Buddha's last words that he expressed, his final teaching before uh, his passing. It's interesting how we don't really say Buddha died, but he did. Right? The Buddha was a human being whose uh, life ended, and he uh, um, ended up being cremated, it's the custom of the day, and his body stopped working, he stopped breathing, his mind was released, and there are uh, many descriptions in both the Parinvana Sutta and the Maha Parinvana Sutta both the Theravada and the Mahayana renditions of the Buddha's passing, um, his, they're, they're different, they're, they're somewhat different in their emphasis, but the story is largely the same and the teachings are largely the same. How many of you are familiar with the Buddha's final teaching? Anybody here not know, have never heard of it? All right. Um, Yes, so so what were his last words? Different translations, but one of them is that, uh, yes, Rob. Be a lamp unto yourself. Be a lamp unto yourself. 
Sometimes uh, translated as be an island unto yourself. Um, what do you do with that light? This lamp, this, this light that we have, that we are illuminating. We're turning this light inward to illuminate ourselves, right? Our body and mind, our disposition, our internal awareness of what is, of uh, who is this? What is this? And what do we do with that light beyond illuminating ourselves? We shine. <laughs> we shine our light outward to the entire world and to all beings. Right? So not only do we, are we uh, to be lamps unto ourselves, but to pass that light on to future generations and actually to everything and everyone without exception. Without exception. Without exception. <laughs> Which I think is really hard for us, yeah? It can be. It can be very hard. Um, oftentimes, actually, we find that uh, being a lamp unto ourselves means um, exerting a sense of great compassion and care. Right? And so actually the final words of the, of the Buddha are uh, work out your liberation or your salvation. Work out your, the cessation of um, uh, the mental kind of churning. Right? This monkey mind, this inner critic or however you want to describe it. Right? How do we find peace within ourselves how do we work out our own awakening, our liberation? And then he says, with great diligence. Or with great, um, it's translated in lots of different ways. So strive with earnestness. Mm -hmm. uh, work out your liberation with diligence, with vigilance. Uh, that all fabrications, all things that are uh, compounded, all things that are created, that come into being, all of those things necessarily come apart. Okay? All compounded things, it is of their nature to decay. So how to bring about our liberation from suffering with, um, with heedfulness is another translation of this word. The word that's used is apamada, which uh, Stephen Batchelor has a great article where he talks about this word and how there's not a real clear, like all of these things like heedfulness, vigilance, determination, untiring, diligence, like none of those actually bring about the, the, the nugget, which is with great care. How do we work out our own liberation with great care. Um, at, the, at the Buddha's uh, final passing, uh, there are a number of monastics in uh, attendance, including the Buddha's disciple and his personal attendant, Ananda, who at the time of the Buddha's passing had not yet worked out his own liberation. And it's kind of, yeah, it's kind of sad, some of the... So in the story of the Buddha, it's kind of sad how 
uh, Ananda's story is a little sad. Like, for example, there were, uh, there were several times in the story where the Buddha told Ananda that he gave him the so-called broad hint of, you know, if, if someone were really uh, advanced on the path and had, you know, exerted the four powers of mindfulness and had, um, you know, transcended uh, the trappings of selfing and ego, if such a person were asked to extend their lifespan to a full human life, of, uh, which was thought to be 100 years, uh, the Buddha died at 80, when he was 80 years old. Um, but if, you know, if, the, if someone who had been you know, enlightened in this, in this way were asked to extend their life to the full span of 100, they would be able to do that. And apparently the Buddha told this to Ananda 18 times, <laughs> I read, 18 different times. And, the, and Ananda was just like, oh. And, and never actually asked the Buddha, please, please extend your life out of great compassion for all of, uh, all of your disciples, the, uh, the entire sangha of monks and nuns and lay men and lay women. Please extend your life. That the Buddha, you know, the Buddha said, you know, you know, one could do that, and uh, and Ananda didn't didn't take the broad hint. That's how it's described. And the Buddha, you know, at, at some point, as the Buddha's dying, uh, Ananda says, "Whoa, please extend your life." And and the Buddha says, "Ananda, you idiot! <laughs> Pretty much, he's you know, can you, I told you this many times, and you never took the broad hint." So, sorry. Yes, <laughs> Rob. Will you extend your life? <laughs> <laughs> I would if I could. Thank you. <laughs> yes, Jess. Why did they feel that they needed to put this like scapegoat kind of thing on like blaming Ananda? <laughs> yeah, that's a good. You know, it's interesting. <laughs> That's a that is a very good question. I I kind of think that, um, in part, I think it has to do with the sort of the legend of the Buddha, the Buddha not wanting to have desires, or not uh, having transcended personal desires. Um, you know, there's the other the other example of this kind of thing is after the Buddha's enlightenment, does he go out and teach? No, he doesn't, actually. After he attains enlightenment under the Bodhi tree, he keeps it to himself for quite some time. He's like, I'm not sure how to even, how am I supposed to do, like, how would I, uh, how would I be able to even transmit this teaching? And it's only after he is asked by the god Brahma to teach, please teach, does he actually start to teach. So I think it's in line with that same kind of, um, you know, needing to be asked. It's interesting because I think that thread runs through uh, our own school here at Austin Zen Center. One of the things that in our visioning is this question about how welcoming are we as a community to people who come in for, to, for newcomers. Like we actually, there's a, there's a big kind of feeling of like we give people their space. We don't kind of go up to them and say, like, hey, welcome, here's our you know, offerings, come to this. We don't do that so much, although, you know, we do try sometimes. But again, it's very, um, 
we try and do it with great care, right? So for example, if somebody walks in and I happen to be in the foyer, somebody walks into the, into the Zen Center and it's a new person and they look like, you know, duh. <laughs> I don't know what I'm doing here, but this is weird, but I'm here. You know, I will give them a lot of space. And if they look to me as like, in, in an inquiring way, like, what do I do? <laughs> then I will, I will definitely engage them out of the sense of care, right? Of wanting to take care of people. However, I don't. I also have this strong feeling, and I think is part of the training in, uh, in Zen, is to give people a lot of their own space. And to not try to, you know, it's not a, we're not a proselytizing uh, religion. Not to say that we don't make the teachings, we, not that we wouldn't want to share them, we actually do really want to share uh, the practices of waking up, and because why do we want to share them? Because they're so beneficial, out of the sense of, uh, this, is, this is helpful for my own life, right? This is my own, my own path to practice, um, has, yeah, I would love to be able to share it. However, you know, it's almost like you have to ask. <laughs> right? And so I think that's, that's a similar thing to your question, Jess. Um, so, but at the time of the Buddha's passing, so there's various disciples that were in attendance, including Ananda, who had not yet attained enlightenment. He did later, after years after. Um, but one of the uh, disciples, Anuruddha, was there. And while the Buddha was, so there's this whole description of what's happening internally as the Buddha is making his way to Parinirvana, which is kind of a weird thing to say, but as he's in the process of crossing over, of leaving his body, leaving this life, uh, not returning Right, all of these ways that we talk about death, um, while he's, he's going, crossing over, there's great descriptions of his mental state and what's going on for him in his meditation. And one thing that is really a, a huge teaching in the Buddha's crossing over is that he has a choice, that he chooses at what point he dies. So in the description, he goes through, and some of you may be familiar with the jhanas, these meditative states. Um, in Zen, we don't really emphasize jhana practice, but in other schools of Buddhism, jhanas are very uh, sought after as meditative states of mind. But in the description, the Buddha goes through all of these jhanas, going through the first jhana and the second and the third and the fourth jhana. Then after entering and going through those jhanas, the fourth jhana being the state of like complete composure and equanimity. Um, after going through the jhanas, he enters into these other states of mind, which are these spheres of awareness. There's the sphere of infinite space, the sphere of infinite consciousness, the sphere of no-thingness, the sphere of neither perception nor non-perception, 
And then the cessation, the sphere of the cessation of feeling and perception. So it is in the story, the Buddha goes through these jhanas, he goes all the way through these five spheres, and then he goes back down through each of the spheres. It's like he's, you know, he's taking his, like, lap around the, the universe through consciousness and visiting each of these, these spheres. He comes back down, all the way down through the four jhanas to the first jhana, and then goes back up to the fourth jhana. And that point, Anuruddha, uh, actually, at some point, when he reaches, when the Buddha reaches the sphere of cessation of feeling and perception, at that point, Ananda says, oh, the Buddha has passed, he's gone. And Anuruddha says, no, no, Ananda, he's not gone yet. Anuruddha had, was, at this point, uh, an enlightened being. He had been uh, awakened. So he was further along the path than Ananda. So he gets to say to Ananda, poor Ananda, he gets to say to Ananda, no, not yet. He hasn't left. Uh, he hasn't left this life yet. And then as he goes back down to the jhanas and then goes back up to the fourth jhana, at that fourth jhana, at that point, Anuruddha says, the Buddha has now passed. And at that point, of course, there are, uh, for all, it's in the story, it says, for all those who have not yet woken up, they're you know, overcome by sadness. And uh, I just share that in uh, this, doing this uh, retreat, which is billed as a ceremonial retreat, because the whole thing is one giant ceremony, but at that moment in our sitting, we're all sitting in the zendo, facing out, sitting in meditation, in this ceremony in the, you know, at night, late at night, and at that point, everybody who is sitting has a little candle in front of them, and we all blow the candles out at that point. And there's a gong. So anyway, uh, you can tell I, I, I am quite partial to this, the, uh, this retreat that we do every year. So, however, in this, uh, these words that the Buddha says right before, this idea of being lamps unto oneself and taking great care, in exerting ourselves on the path of practice. So that's his final teaching. He refers to many other teachings, mostly the four foundations of mindfulness, right? the 37 factors of a Buddha, um, the seven factors of enlightenment. There's all these different teachings that he's referring to as this is the path of practice. And what is important in all of this is this heedfulness, this, this taking great care. And it's interesting, in terms of um, this, this choosing the time to cross over, he chooses the time that is the sort of the maximum of equanimity and peacefulness. And this in itself, I want to say, is the teaching that applies to each and every one of us, that we also have the ability to make a choice. Sometimes it doesn't feel like it, right? Sometimes it feels like we're being propelled along by our karma, right? Our, our causes and conditions that led to where we are today, that, uh, that we almost, it's almost like we don't have a choice, 
Or who is it that has a choice, right? So as we practice, we start to let a lot of uh, stuff, karmic stuff, build up of our habit energies. We get to see it while we sit. Like we carve out time to sit. And when we sit in zazen, what are we doing? Are we doing anything? What is this just sitting? Watching. Hmm? So we're employing our awareness. We are practicing devotion. Mm. How does that, how does that, I like the sound of that. What, is, what does that look like for you when you sit zazen? It's a ceremony. The ceremony of sitting zazen? Yeah. Where you uh, express devotion within the ceremony of sitting. And the devotion is to all beings, saving all beings. To saving all beings, including yourself. Yes. Right? So taking great care. Right. Again, this carefulness. In the Dhammapada, um, there's a verse which I find very beautiful. The verse is care is the path to the deathless. Carelessness is the path to death. The caring do not die. The uncaring are as already dead. Very interesting. So what is this deathless? I think your devotion, uh, Eric, is, is, is pointing to that. Right? This devotion that maybe when you sit zazen, uh, you cultivate an intention, right? a wish, an aspiration to be of benefit, right? Uh, to, to who? To be of benefit to what? Um. To all beings, right? And again, without exception, which means that the ones that are really hard to generate love and care for, there may be some in our lives <laughs> who are hard to care for, um, that those actually become some of our best teachers, right? It's easy to care for cute little puppies and kittens. <laughs> Very easy to care for things that make us go, aww. Right. However, when we find in ourselves our tendency to, uh, to turn away, to dismiss, to undermine, right? Um, how do we do, how do we be with the challenging people in our lives? And I, and I don't mean, I think there's also, I just want to say, there's a big, very huge difference between being with, being with a person, in person, face to face, someone who's tangibly there, as opposed to someone who is just a head on a screen talking, <laughs> right? Um, that actually being in person is where we get to exercise care, uh, more, more readily. However, in terms of like the Buddha being able to choose the moment of passing over, this choice that we have when we notice our internal disposition when we're sitting, we actually is the primary place where we, can, we get to practice noticing. 
right? When we're, you know, going from point A to point B and we've got things we need to do and we're trying to juggle our lives and our commitments and responsibilities and our needs and wants and desires and all of those things, those are also times to practice, but it's much harder to see clearly than when we carve out space in our lives to sit and look inward, right? So when we're sitting and looking inward, how do we take great care? Because that's really, I mean, when, when we're doing that, that's, that's p- like pure intimacy with ourselves. Partly by not pushing it away, what comes up. By not pushing away what comes up, right? Yeah, which, you know, it's very easy for us to do, especially if it's painful or challenging, right? How many of you are familiar with uh, Stephen Levine's practice of uh, a year to live? Anybody had taken up that practice before? No? So this practice of a year to live, I, um, uh, somebody in the, in the Sangha was just telling me that, that actually today is her last day <laughs> in her year to live. Right, so she's not here today because she's practicing her last day with a group of other people who are also practicing their last day of, of the year to live. But it's uh, taking up the, um, the intention and a practice of, okay, for this next 365 days, I'm going to take the next 365 days, this next year, and imagine that it is my last year. And what do you think that does to us when we take something like that up? Maybe, maybe. (laughs) Yeah, it's kind of a challenging thing to do if you think you might have to, you know, live another 20, 30, 40 years after that. Um, But in taking up the practice, you kind of start to see, you imagine that you start to see what's important, what's relevant, um, right? And you start to notice the things that we get really tied up in knots over that are not necessarily, uh, if we had one year to live, we wouldn't, waste the, we, we wouldn't waste our time on a lot of things that we normally feel like uh, these are so important. Mary? Well, I was just wondering, I would also imagine that your sense of um, existential angst would be a little bit more salient as well. That this, all of the fears that surround that come forward. During this year of practice. Yeah, and that the disposition, the mind, right, our mind that goes into doing some practice like taking up the year to live, right, is to do it with great care because we know it's going to bring up a lot that may not be brought up, right? we may not look at. Right? Yes, Eric? Um, another practice that I do sometimes is... Uh imagine that I've died and then actually have one day to come back to experience life this one day and focus on that that really brings you to the present because you have a whole year you can kind of put things off so <laughs> well, I've got t- 200 days left <laughs> but yeah so taking it up as just a, as a year or taking it up as a meditation for one period of zazen right? what's important, what's true for me if this breath is my last breath. How do I want to spend it? Right. Sometimes I'll do, find that in 
just the period of sitting where um, I kind of think it's getting to the end of the period. And um, sometimes... <laughs> That's a ripe moment, isn't it? <laughs> sometimes that can be like, oh, so right now to come back, you know, it, it sort of brings that, that immediacy back um, where I might have been like sort of falling off the thought and coming back, falling out of the thought and coming back. It, it brings a, a little bit more like, oh, okay, so if I want to actually really just focus on my awareness and like, be open and let things go, now is the time to do it because that bell's going to ring. And I don't, you know, I don't know. Right. But even in that. Yeah, measure, right? To yeah. take that up. And where does that, that impulse come from? So how many of you have had the impulse when you realize that the period may very well be ending momentarily? Do you feel kind of impatient? <laughs> oh, I want to get over with this so I can go out and do something. Or, right? Right? So how to invite that quality of only a few minutes before the bell rings. Okay, double down on our efforts to be fully aware and present. That's excellent. I like that. That also, that feeling also happens in Sashin. Like the third or fourth day when you're just like, well, okay, this is it. Yeah, you just kind of give over <laughs> at that point, right? It's futile. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's so funny. Wait, have, has anybody here not had the opportunity to do a long, longer meditation retreat? Like a couple days? It's a it's an amazing experience to uh, because you do like when we sit down for one period, we do get to do a whole you know inventory of stuff right that comes up. However, to do it again, you know, in the next period and then the next period. If you haven't gotten to do a, a longer retreat and you're curious, um, next not next week, the week after next, there is a half day sit on the eighth. Uh, which starts at 8 and goes till noon, and it's very gentle. It's 25, I think, 20 or 25-minute periods of sitting, and then 10 minutes of walking meditation, and then 20 minutes of sitting, 10 minutes of walking. And, um, and just, like, you know, with the curiosity of a child, ideally, like, go in and, and take a look at what that experience brings. Um, and I, I would say, this is this teaching of taking great care to remember that teaching. Oftentimes we just forget. And we may notice, though, as we are sitting, we're putting down our thinking mind as much as we can, right? When noticing, well, we can't really get rid of it. You can't get rid of your thinking mind. <coughs> so how do you exist within your thinking mind and notice paying very great attention, paying great attention to the intricacies and the nuances of what our mind is up to when we have nothing to do other than sit there with a blank wall in front of us, right? It's amazing how our mind, to see very intimately what our mind is up to, right? In particular, uh, noticing also whether we have a tendency for um, uh, self-judgment, 
Oftentimes people say to me, I find it really easy to be compassionate to other people, but not to myself. It's really hard to, to employ self-compassion. Right? How many of you feel that this is, this is your experience? That it's hard to be compassionate to oneself? Okay. That it seems easier to be compassionate towards somebody else's suffering, but that when you yourself find yourself suffering, that what comes up is like a little judge. Right? <laughs> you, know, you need to do this and do that. And it's got all kinds of ideas. <laughs> this internal uh, critic is full of ideas. Right? So um, in this Buddha's final teaching, how to apply that care you know, how do we practice giving, extending great care to our own well-being in the midst of our uh, being uh, you know, uh, hooked by this internal critic? The um, I wanted to bring up. Are in our school. This is School of Soto Zen, which was founded in, uh, its roots are in all the way back to the time of the Buddha, but going through transmission to transmission, teacher to student, all the way up from the time of the Buddha through Bodhidharma coming from India to China, and then Dogen Zenji bring, bringing this tradition uh, from China to Japan and it's spread throughout Asia and then uh, landing in the United States through a number of teachers but in our school we look to Shinryu Suzuki um, as bringing Soto Zen to the United States even though there are other Soto teachers who have come but in this Dogen Zenji's own uh, uh, passing, like what did he emphasize? And it turns out that he emphasized the same thing that the Buddha did, this idea of taking great care. So as he knew he was getting sick, he was only 53 when he died, very young, but he had founded a monastery in Echizen province in Japan, which is on the northern coast of um, central Japan in, towards the north part of, the central, of central Japan on the coast. And he had founded a monastery and had a number of disciples there. Um, and he was very careful to, as he was approaching his death, who am I going to leave this temple to? Who is of these, these people who are around, who are in the temple? Who of these people is going to take care of it? And uh, what is the most... Um, you know, oftentimes people say things like, oh, how can I thank you for your teaching? How can I thank you or how can I pay homage to the Buddha and to what I've received from uh, this lineage, from this teaching, from this practice? Right? And the answer is always to take great care of the practice that you have in your own life. Right? Knowing that that practice, how you as an individual take great care will extend out, right? There's this expression, to shine one corner. To shine one corner knowing that that reverberates out. So in Dogen's time, he wrote a, uh, one of his 
works was is called the Tenzo Kyokun, which is a instructions to the cook, to the temple cook. It is a wonderful uh, uh, writing on Dogen's life, which he very rarely talks about his own life. Um, oftentimes, if you read Dogen's works, they're coming from the perspective of enlightenment, but not from the perspective of stumbling on the path towards enlightenment. <laughs> but the Tenzo Kyokun is really kind of his way-seeking mind talk, where he talks about you know, being a kind of bumbling newbie, like on his way to China, just kind of not really understanding what was going on and how, he, how the path had been illuminated for him through the people that he met and through the practices that he uh, came into contact with. In the Tenzo Kyokun, um, in this Instructions to the Cook, he talks about this carefulness, this uh, heedfulness. So, for example, um, one, one way that he talks about it, he says, in preparing food for the community. So you can imagine the Tenzo, the position of being the head cook in a monastery, is a highly revered position. In preparing food for the community, it is crucial not to grumble about the quality of the ingredients, but rather to cultivate a temper which sees and respects them fully for what they are. Now imagine being uh, in charge of the meal, right? And you get some ingredients, and they're kind of, you know, dilapidated. You know? It would be very easy to be like, ugh, this carrot, it looks so, you know, weasoned. <laughs> you know, I'm not going to use it, right? But, but Dogen is, is actually pushing against our tendency for this critical mind, right? And how to see the virtue in things. Um, Ed Brown, who's the, uh, I mentioned earlier, is coming here at the end of March. He has this great teaching story where he talks about um, how he had been complaining as the head cook. Apparently at Tassajara, there were a bunch of students who used to sneak into the kitchen and steal cookies. And so he started sleeping on the counter <laughs> of the kitchen and uh, to, you know, to prevent them from stealing the cookies. And, and he was complaining to Suzuki Roshi about these, you know, oh, these students are terrible. And, and apparently Suzuki Roshi said to him, you should see the virtue in everyone. That was his response to, uh, <laughs> to Ed Brown complaining. It's like, try to see the virtue in everything and everyone. Right. That doesn't mean that you don't stop people from stealing the cookies. <laughs> but again, it's how do, we, how do we go into that with our, our own mind? How do we orient ourselves? So, for example, in this, how do we cultivate a temper, our temperament, which sees and values and respects things fully for what they are, not expecting them to be something other than what they are, right? So in the sense of, in our own practice of meditation, how do we cultivate the temperament? Because when we sit down, it's very easy, we can set, up, we can set things up for ourselves very easily so that we're going to fail, right? We sit down and we're trying to sit still, <laughs> we're trying not to move, we're trying to be present with everything that comes up, including our achy knees, or maybe our foot falls asleep, or that little point in our back starts to scream loudly, right, in pain. Like, we might find ourselves very easily judging ourselves and being kind of mean to ourselves, right? Uh, and setting ourselves up for, uh, for failure. So just in one period of meditation, we have this opportunity to cultivate a temperament, right? Uh, later on in the Tenzo Kyokun, 
Dogen is talking about this, how the Tenzo, the head cook, needs to cultivate these three kinds of mind. The three kinds of mind are um, a magnanimous mind, a joyful mind, and then he calls it grand parental or just parental mind. And this is what I mean when I, when I talk about this feeling of care, right? how to cultivate a parental mind towards oneself and one's own mental states, one's own failing bodies. Right? It's very easy to, uh, to judge. And when we do that, if we're cultivating a presence of mind to see what's happening without judgment, Right? We get to see our own judgments. And then, in practicing this temperament, we might be able to invite ourselves to back off of that judgment, or to at least notice it. And if we notice that we're judging ourselves, and that we're creating our own little whirlpool of suffering, what's the appropriate response to any form of suffering? Curiosity, compassion, care. Right? So again, how to remind ourselves of this moment after moment with in-breath and out-breath. As soon as, if we have a disposition that is one of the parental mind, right? um, we're creating a spaciousness. We're laying out this, this ground of being that can it be fully aware and accepting of what is. And then, I mean, sometimes people hear that and they say, well, I don't want to be accepting of certain things in the world. There's injustice and I need to work against it. Right? That's true. What is the disposition that goes into our effort to make the world uh, a kinder, more uh, clear, and harmonious place. Right? If we go in with a sense of aversion, it's gonna be harder than if we acknowledge what is, you know, matter-of-factly, oh, that thing over there, that causes harm. Let's try to, you know, change that. Right? If our, where we come from is this feeling of taking great care, like a parent, a good parent. <laughs> Just have to say, because some people I know did not have very good uh, uh, experiences with uh, their parents or their parenting or what have you. But being um, having this parental mind, this mind that wants to see the best for their children, right? To see their children be free from suffering, right? Um, Uchiyama Roshi has a description of this parental mind. It's kind of interesting. I'm going to read a little short piece from it. So in the Tenzo Kyokun, he... Uh, so, he, let's see, let me just... Okay, so Uchiyama's teacher, Sawaki Roshi, used this expression, live the self that fills the whole universe. Live the self... This uh, self, you know, maybe you're thinking, well, in Buddhism there shouldn't be a self. Where's this? What is a self? Right. This um, another way of describing it is this: 
this awareness, this reflexive awareness, so it's an awareness that's turning the light inward, such that it fills the whole universe, that there isn't anything that it doesn't illuminate, right? that everything is uh, in its care, in its orbit of care. When we see the words universe or world or all sentient beings, we are apt to think that this means we should meditate on our awareness expanding in some large space in the way that a balloon expands when filled with air. And Ushama says, but that's not what it, this means. Life must take the form of living activity, and the Tenzo Kyokun teaches us that the self, inclusive of the whole world, is nothing other than the very things, people, or situations that we presently encounter and know, Okay, key point here is that we presently encounter and helps us to discover our lives through these things and in turn pour all of our life ardor back into them. And then he quotes the Tenzo Kyokun. Once the Tenzo, the cook, has these ingredients, they must handle them as carefully as if they were their own eyes. Day and night, allow all things to come into and reside within your mind. Allow your mind, or yourself, and all things to function together as a whole. And to handle them, uh, let's see, there's this old saying, this is from the Tenzo Kyokun, which goes, see the pot as your own head, and see the water as your lifeblood. Clean the chopsticks, ladles, and all other utensils. Handle them with equal care and awareness, putting everything back to where it naturally belongs. To handle them with equal care and awareness is very important. Uh, in other words, when you work with some tool or utensil, this is how we bring this practice of being uh, stewards to all things. It is great care, how we practice this great care. When we work with some inanimate object, right, a tool, a utensil, uh, you should put it back when you're finished with it and not just leave it sitting around. When you put down a pot roughly, banging it around on the concrete or tiled sink, it cries out in pain. If you are still unable to hear that cry, then you can hardly be said to be a person living out Zazen in daily life. <laughs> this is Uchiyama. <laughs> of course, this applies not only to utensils and things, but equally to situations and people. Okay, so this is the invitation. Um, a good part of a reason why people may treat things roughly and are hard on others is because they are thinking only of what is beneficial to themselves or else because they dislike putting all their energies into their work. Um, one of Dogen's disciples who was uh, received Dharma transmission from um, Kon Ejo. So Dogen Zenji gave transmission, he gave his robe and his bowl to his disciple Kon Ejo, who then, apparently nine days before his own passing, he gave the robe that Dogen had given him and a bowl to Tetsu Gikai. And Tetsu Gikai, interestingly, he wrote a, uh, a work called the Gyo, Go Yuigon Kiroku, which is the record of the final words of the founder of Eheji, Dogen Zenji. So again, this record of final words was written by Tetsu Gikai, 
um, who was, at some point in his training, he was the head cook at Aheji. And in his practice, he says there were no fewer than three times, he says, no fewer than three times where Dogen remonstrated with Gikai, telling him that he needed to develop more grandmotherly mindfulness. So again, this parental mind, this grandparent mind, grandmotherly mind, right? And where Dogen stresses the importance of this mental disposition, describing it in terms of a parent's selfless devotion to their children. So he says, uh, this is from Gikai's uh, writings. He's talking uh, to uh, his teacher, Kohen Ejo. He says, this past year or so, I have been reflecting on the lectures I heard given by our former teacher, Dogen. Even though I had heard all of them from our former teacher, now they are different in meaning than at first. This difference concerns this assertion that Buddhism is transmitted by our teacher, that the Buddhism transmitted by our teacher is the correct performance of one's present monastic tasks. Even though I had heard that Buddhist ritual is Buddhism, in my heart I privately felt that true Buddhism must reside apart from this. And remember, he's talking from the perspective of living in a monastic uh, environment where there's all kinds of you know, daily ceremonies and things that one tends to as part of living in a, in a monastery. So in his heart, he privately felt that their true Buddhism was something other than his daily life, basically. That some, somehow outside of one's daily life and how one treats commonplace items like chopsticks. <laughs> uh, recently, however, I have changed these views and I now know that monastic ritual and deportment themselves are that true Buddhism. Even if apart from these, there also is this infinite Buddhism of the Buddhas and patriarchs, still it is all the very same Buddhism. I have attained true confidence in this profound principle that apart from the lifting of an arm or the moving of a leg, within one's Buddhist deportment, there can be no other reality. So again, this... this practice instruction that he talks about from the Dogen's, uh, what Dogen was concerned with before he himself passed on, was extending this, this uh, practice of taking great care. Right? And again, this practice of taking great care extends not just to one's own children, but to uh, all things, as if they were one's own children. So everybody whom one makes contact with in person, right? To be a steward of those relationships. And everything one is uh, in contact with through physical form, right? So a lot of the practices of monastic life that we get to do here in, in chunks, in these doses, for example, when we have a Sangha workday, people come, sometimes people say things like, oh, it's so strange how I come to the Zen Center for Sangha workday and I clean the Zen Center floor or the you know, cobweb or I rake leaves or I you know, tend to the garden and I, I care for the Zen Center way more than I do my own house. <laughs> and it's kind of funny when, when, uh, when that's expressed. And um, uh, 
it's both understandable and it's an invitation to extend that care that one gives, right? We're very fortunate to have this space. I don't know if many of you know, but this space that we have here, the Austin Zen Center, um, was donated by a very generous donor to the community back in the year 2000. So it's, it's 20 years now that this space has belonged to the Austin Zen Center. And it's been maintained over the years by hundreds of people who have come through, thousands of people have come through this space, but hundreds of people have made it their home in the sense that they have taken care of it. They've extended their care, right? And I'm hoping that in doing so, that what is learned by putting oneself in that position of taking care of something, right? That that care translates, that it, it pervades one's entire life, right? That it has the opportunity at least to extend out so that when we leave this space that we may feel a certain connection to and a wish to take care of, right? That that wish to take care actually goes with us wherever we go and is kind of um, permeates our interactions with everybody that we meet, right? It doesn't mean like caretaking, right? In the sense, be an island unto oneself, right? You can't, uh, what's that expression? You can lead a horse to water, but you can't make the horse drink. Is that the expression? Yeah. Right? In the same way, right? We can't become enlightened for somebody else. We can't wake up on somebody else's, uh, for somebody else. They, people, as individuals in their own karmic stream, they have their own karmic uh, habitual patterns to work through, right? We can be, uh, we can extend care, right? And offer them a place to sit. <laughs> Please sit, right? We can extend a cup of tea. We can extend a meal, right? Um, we can sit with each other. We can show up for each other's uh, trials and tribulations in, in life. Right? That's the meaning of community. Right? And that's what we're cultivating here. But how to extend that carefulness is working out our liberation right, with great attentive care. Right? So um, next time you're in a situation, which will be in, you know, just, you know, five minutes from now or <laughs> where you feel where there's an opportunity that you can open yourself to this question of how do I take care of this right? in a non-selfing right um, wholehearted as much as you can find a wholehearted unselfish uh, joyous magnanimous grand parental way and even just hearing those words, I, I hope that what is happening as you take that in is a feeling of buoyancy, of being, of having some um, uplifted feeling of, yes, I want to do that. I want to take care of my life. And my life includes everybody, everybody and everything that I come into contact with. Right? And that is the Bodhisattva path. That is the devotion that, Eric, I think you're talking about when you take, the, take your seat, right? And you, you take up the opportunity to be uh, in presence to 
whatever is arising. How do we do that? And then how do we do that together as we go forward? I went on way too long. Thank you very much for coming. And uh, as I mentioned before, we're having our visioning meeting on uh, this upcoming Wednesday. You're all welcome to come. And if you uh, haven't taken the survey and would like to, please do. Uh, the link to it is on our website. And uh, you know, please participate in taking, taking great care. Thank you very much. <laughs>